In May of 2018, Mother Jones reporter Shane Bauer went to Syria to try and understand America's role in one of the 21st century's greatest tragedies. It's weird to be uh, in this country, um, in this part of the country. It's controlled by the militia that uh, is backed by the United States. You're listening to Bite. I'm Kira Butler, here with Maddie Oatman. Today, we're going to hear an excerpt from a three-part series on the Mother Jones podcast about Shane's investigation on the American involvement in Syria. And though this is a truly bitter conflict, Syria has produced some of the world's richest cuisine and culture. Later in the show, we'll take you inside the kitchen of a Syrian chef who fled his home country, but brought his beloved recipes with him. First, here's an excerpt from Behind the Lines, a special series by the Mother Jones podcast. You'll first hear from Shane Bauer, and later he'll be joined by Mother Jones podcast executive producer James West. Raqqa was one of the largest cities in northeast Syria. In March 2012, President Bashar al-Assad faced demonstrations in what he had considered to be one of his most loyal cities. The Syrian revolution was a year old, and Raqqa was rising. It was the first city in Syria to have been uh, taken from the regime. Early in the conflict, it was a very significant uh, city. Um, it quickly was taken over by uh, Islamist factions. Nusra, which is uh, essentially a branch of al-Qaeda, took it over. ISIS eventually split from Nusra. Al-Qaeda-linked militants, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, known as ISIS, have in the past month put an end to the liberal lifestyles of Raqqa. By 2014, ISIS uh, took over the city completely. ISIS declared a caliphate, um, which was kind of constantly expanding state, quasi-state, uh, between Iraq and Syria, and they named Raqqa the capital of that caliphate. The city, like ISIS in general, was ruled by largely by foreigners. They were not Syrians, necessarily. A lot of the low-level fighters were Syrians, but uh, ISIS was really an outside organization. Um, it really came from Iraq, and a lot of people came from around the world and joined it. It was as if there was an outside kind of occupying force uh, in their city. It, you know, initiated a very, very extreme type of rule that was uh, much more extreme than the group that had controlled the city beforehand, which was Al-Qaeda. They controlled the city for about three years, and throughout that time period, they became more and more strict. And, you know, it just ruled through terror. ISIS was in control of Raqqa. 2017, what happens? Throughout ISIS's rule of Raqqa, the city had been bombed from time to time uh, by the Syrian regime, by Russians, and by uh, the U.S.-led coalition. But in 2017... What could be the final battle? There was, in the summer, started to be preparations for a, uh, a much larger battle to take the city. Raqqa, Syria. Ground zero in the war against ISIS. 
where U.S.-backed forces are locked in a fight to the death. The Battle of Raqqa was four months long. It's putting up a brutal fight. We know more this morning about a wave of coalition airstrikes against ISIS. Roughly 4,000 airstrikes and 95% of those were, were from American jets. All coordinated by U.S. military forces. Don't underestimate how important this is. We're talking the capital of ISIS. There's a wild statistic in your reporting that compares what happened in Raqqa to Vietnam. There was a U.S. Marine battalion that fired some 30,000 artillery rounds into the city, which was more than any Marine battalion since uh, Vietnam. They literally melted uh, the barrels of their howitzers uh, because of the volume. And this sort of connects with one of the bigger themes of all your reporting, which is that Americans themselves may not know that. Yeah, you know, um, I think our involvement in the Syrian war has uh, really slipped under the radar. The moments that uh, we have paid attention to what the United States is doing in Syria have been uh, felt kind of random sometimes. I think if, if something like uh, Raqqa had happened in the Vietnam War, for example, it might have been one of the, the most sensational parts of that war. It was, uh, you know, just a total onslaught of an entire city. And maybe part of the reason is that, you know, there has been a willingness to kind of excuse any strategy uh, as long as it's fighting ISIS. So, you know, in some ways, people fighting them got kind of a blank check. And it does seem there has been another change in the form of the Trump presidency. Yeah. Tremendous strides. I don't know if you've seen what's going on, but tremendous strides against ISIS. They never got hit like this before. An actual escalation or a loosening of the rules of engagement. Describe for our listeners the ways in which some of those policy changes may have impacted on a war like Raqqa. You know, what's interesting about President Trump is that he... Uh, posited himself as America shouldn't be doing the fighting kind of anti-war candidate or an isolationist for every nation on earth in Syria the American war really uh, ramped up pretty dramatically once Trump became president civilian casualties uh, by American aircraft rose a lot Trump really loosened the rules of engagement the military approach in Syria switched to um, what he called annihilation tactics and the bombing increased dramatically. We've done more against ISIS in nine months than the previous administration's done during its whole administration. By far, by far. In Syria, the, you know, the military and the generals were, were more empowered uh, under Trump to, to make decisions uh, in the field than they had been under Obama. So when you compare it to other battles, let's say Fallujah, where the, the United States was trying to take a city from what it considered an enemy force, in Syria, we did not send in ground troops. Officials have kind of boasted to me about that strategy that we really saved American lives. But the flip side of that was that meant that the bombardment had to be much heavier, which meant uh, more civilian casualties. It also meant uh, high casualties of our proxy forces in Syria, uh, Syrian Democratic Forces. So, you know, it, it saved American lives, but it did not necessarily save lives in general. I think it also made it so that Americans were not that aware about the war because Americans weren't dying there. 
That segment was from Behind the Lines, produced by James West, Mark Helenowski, and Shane Bauer. Check out the full series on the Mother Jones podcast and read Shane Bauer's investigation and watch his riveting video footage on motherjones.com. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, you'll get a taste of some of the family secrets one Syrian refugee smuggled out of his home country. On a recent afternoon, Mother Jones Digital Fellow Jordan Gasparé paid a visit to a kitchen in Queens. Here's Jordan. Behind an unmarked door in Long Island City, Chef Dia Alhalnoun greets me in the kitchen where he works. He drizzles olive oil on creamy hummus and places pita bread on the side. Crispy kibe, or potato croquettes, are stuffed with minced beef, onion, and seven spice, a mixture of spices used to flavor dishes. When I eat or I cook Syrian food, I remember when I work, also when I was very young, I, my mom make it uh, cook food Syrian. When I uh, make now food Syrian, I remember uh, all these uh, moments. Chef Dia grew up in Syria. There, he barbecued meats for kebabs and the delicious kibeh I tried, alongside his family and friends. He picked up the skills from a cook in his uncle's restaurant in his hometown of Damascus. He describes the first dish he ever made, shish tauk, char-streaked chunks of juicy chicken on a skewer. That was uh, so delicious. We uh, go in outside the farm. I make it all and uh, grilled, and when taste, very nice. Before the crisis in Syria began, Dia was in Sudan with his family, trying to launch a restaurant there. But when he wanted to leave, he couldn't go back to Syria because the war had started. So he went to Jordan instead, thinking the war would end soon and he'd be able to return to Damascus. There was no going home. He waited four long years in Jordan as a refugee. I think maybe two months, one month, two months finish, I go my country, but no. Then, two and a half years ago, Chef Dia remembers the exact date. I uh, come America uh, 2016, uh, October, 19 October. He now lives in Staten Island with his wife, son, and daughter. In all of these vastly different places, food has been the rare constant. Chef Dia continues to cook Syrian food in his new hometown, New York City, through a catering company that serves meals created and prepared by refugees who are resettled here in the city. It's called Eat Off Beat. So my name is Manal Kahi. I'm the co-founder and CEO at Eat Off Beat. Wissam Kahi, co-founder and COO at Eat Off Beat. The entrepreneurial siblings co-founded Eat Off Beat to bring meals from around the world to New Yorkers, while also providing training and employment to refugees. They partner with the International Rescue Committee to find refugees, like Dia, who are interested in the food industry and can cook. 
The International Rescue Committee is one of the nine resettlement agencies contracted by the State Department to help refugees start their lives in the U.S. It all started in 2013 with the family hummus recipe. Manal came to New York City from Lebanon at the peak of the refugee crisis there to pursue a master's degree at Columbia University. When I couldn't find the hummus I longed for or that I wanted, I actually started making it myself. Uh, I couldn't really find it anywhere in grocery stores, maybe in a couple of restaurants, but the best one I made was really the one I made, or I had, was the one I made myself. So I actually called up my grandmother, got her own recipe, and started making that at home. The siblings' grandmother is from Syria. Her take on the dish includes... Chickpeas, uh, lemon juice, tahini, um, garlic for sure is very important, and salt. And the secret ingredient? A little bit of yogurt. That's one of the secrets from my grandma, actually. A tiny bit of yogurt. For Wissam, it's pure nostalgia. When she made her hummus, that brought back so many memories of home, of, you know, the good Sundays and afternoons that we would spend enjoying the whole uh, family lunch. Manal and Wassam had been noticing how many refugees from Syria and Lebanon were being resettled in New York City. Cooking offered a chance to connect their old homes with their new one. Refugees traveling from the Middle East and then resettling in New York City, like Chef Dia, often moved to multiple countries on their journey. Often the refugees that you have here in the United States have been through a lot of hurdles to come here and they have had like to fight their way through. Manal hopes Eat Off Beat can change the narrative around refugees to erase the negative connotation of refugees as people who are vulnerable and need help and replace it with a more positive story of courage and resilience. So it's about kind of trying to see people for who they are rather than a visa status or like a thing in their past and more about also framing the whole conversation about what value they're bringing in, what they're contributing, what they're doing what they dream of, what their ambitions are, rather than what happened before you came or these details that you may or may not want to share. Our story is one where refugees are the chefs, they are the heroes, they are the ones helping us New Yorkers discover something new, something different, and not the other way around. When I visited the kitchen, the team was wrapping up preparation for a meal to be delivered later that day. One chef was baking sumac brownies, and another was chopping tomatoes and onions for a curry sauce. Chef Dia is finishing up the day's work. It may be one of his last days at this kitchen. Soon, he'll be opening his own restaurant, serving shawarma, savory pies, falafel, hummus, and other Syrian dishes. Name of the place, uh, Saqib, address uh, 349 Petford Avenue in Williamsburg. That was Jordan Gasparre reporting from Queens. This has been another episode of Bite. Claire Mullen is our sound engineer, and Seth Samuel composed our theme song. This episode was produced by me, Maddie Oatman, and Jordan Gasparre. Bite comes to you from Mother Jones, a reader-supported nonprofit news organization.
RX.